0: What's up? What's up? This is Zach Boschman checking in. You are locked into the Citizen Truth podcast. We're honored today to have Doug Valentine on the podcast. Today we're talking about Doug's book, The CIA as Organized Crime. So, Doug, let's go right into the first question. You say the CIA is a, quote, criminal conspiracy on behalf of wealthy capitalists, end quote, Could you elaborate on that and speak to the connection that the CIA might have with Wall Street?
1: Sure. You know, that's the essence of the thing. And could speak about it for hours, but we'll try to sum it up. Um, It's not just uh, assuming your listeners know what capitalism is. Okay, it's not just capitalism. It's American capitalism which like any nation in the world has a brand of capitalism, which reflects its culture. So American capitalism is militant, which goes back to the founding of the country. It's racist, you know, it incorporates uh, systematic racism. It's decidedly Christian and, um, you know, promotes Christianity uh, worldwide. The CIA often followed uh, missionaries into foreign countries. You know, the, so it, um, uh, it's a brand of capitalism that reflects America and Americans' culture and America's values. And the personification of this is a guy named Franklin Delano Roosevelt who was the president of the United States during World War II, also during the Great Depression. And he sort of is the guy who began the era of neoliberalism because the uh, Wall Street had a collapse in 1929 uh, and began the Great Depression. People in the, on the stock market on Wall Street had speculated and they didn't have the money to back up their speculations and the Wall Street collapse. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt um, incorporated what were socialist policies throughout the United States where government money was used to create social programs. And this was a departure from what had been going on traditionally in the United States. And um, when World War II began and he had no choice but to um, after, after um, Pearl Harbor to actually send, you know, um, incorporate American, America in World War II, he created a secret service which was the uh, parent organization of the CIA, and that that was called the Office of Strategic Services. Now Franklin Roosevelt himself, again, is the personification of the American establishment. His ancestors were Dutch, immig- uh, you know, settlers in New York in the 17th century, and they owned vast tracts of land in what is now Manhattan. And he's a direct descendant of these guys. I mean, these are the guys that killed all the Indians in New York state and took everything they owned and uh, created Wall Street. You know, Wall Street was this little faction of, of Manhattan which had a wall around it to protect and touch from the Indians. And that's how it gets its name. Well, Roosevelt family was there. I mean, that's, these are the people who built that wall. And so in 1940, uh, 41, 42, when the United States enters World War II, well, he's the president. And it's no, it's no mistake that a guy like Franklin Roosevelt has the support of the American establishment in order to, um, uh, he, he was actually uh, uh, president for several terms, which was unusual. And, and because he did represent the interests of the establishment. Um, in every way conceivable and I should say that the the Merriam-Webster collegiate dictionary defines establishment as a group of powerful people who run a society or uh, government through secret negotiations you know (laughs) the the establishment has its own little class of people and they decide the tax laws and and uh, what should be taught in public schools and all these sorts of things. And and so Roosevelt's the guy who creates the Office of Strategic Services in World War II. And the guy he taps to staff out the Office of Strategic Services, a guy named William Donovan, who's a Catholic from Buffalo. And he had married into um, the wealthiest family in Buffalo. And William Donovan had gone to Columbia Law School with Franklin Delano Roosevelt, they knew each other. And, and um, this guy Donovan was called a lace curtain Irishman, which meant that he sided more with the Anglophiles than with the IRA. And, and he, Roosevelt taps his old buddy Donovan, who's a reactionary, who believes that communism has to be wiped out to protect Christianity and, and the Catholic church. And the people that Donovan taps in turn to create this Office of Strategic Services. Its executive management all come from the establishment. There are guys like uh, Mellons and and, um, just you name the industry and the banking institution, uh, the lawyers for Wall Street. These are the people that Roosevelt trusted Donovan to, to choose and he chooses them. And they're the people that run this organization. Now this organization also hires um, mafiosa <laughs> because when they need to invade Italy, they need some connections there. And it's Vito Genovese and it's people who had been, you know, all time mafioso guys who did not like communism either. And they didn't want, you know, once the German, they were all very friendly with Mussolini as were, as was Henry Ford, you know, and, and, and America, many of American under, industrialists supported the fascists in World War II, so, but they all hate the communists, and including the mafia. So when we, the the the, the uh, this organization of strategic services hires people of every nationality, of every religion, in order to do the jobs that need to be done, and, and but at the same time its executive management, the people who run it and create its policies are all from this Roosevelt Donovan establishment. And that way they can trade, they control through their establishment connections, their private agreements, control over the secret services of the United States. And that is what is still goes on today. Um, if you look at the, um, anybody who was the defense secretary of the United States since World War II, they're all industrialists. They're all guys who ran General Motors or or some banking company or, or, you know, I mean, these are not, the the establishment is not reaching into the the local grocery store owner or plumbers to run these, you know, from your your community to run these uh, huge bureaucracies they're tapping into the people who are Wall Street bankers, they're lawyers, uh, media people, um, but basically industrialists. And, and, and the first guy to actually run the CIA, who was an admiral named Sidney Sewers. And um, this was a guy who ran uh, American life insurance company. He'd been a banker on Wall Street. And this is what happens all the time. So in understanding how the CIA comes to be a particularly American version of capitalism—you have nearly to look at the people who run it and where they come from, and then the people that they hire at the lower ranks. Indeed, just like in the American military today, when when there's a parade at an NFL football game, they march out a lot of black guys, you know, in uniform, and and even some women, but. The people who, you know, these people never get a, a promoter above sergeant, you know, and it's the executive management of the military and the CIA and any important institution in the United States continues to be overwhelmingly establishment, capitalist, uh, Christian and militant, you know, and, and that's, that is, that is um, what the CIA is all about is advancing the interests of this particular establishment class and they do so secretly. And um, as opposed to America's stated objection uh, of objects, um, policies, there is the CIA, this would be the last thing I'll say about this particular answer, but the CIA conducts America's unstated policies. The stated policies of America are that we're democratic, that we're uh, egalitarian, and that everybody has an equal chance. The unstated policies of the United States are contradictory to that, and the institutions and the systems that the establishment puts in place do not actually allow for racial equality or the um, you know success of, of of average people. You know, they 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 still create a tax system that allows um, um, billionaires to put. Um, have tax-free retirement accounts with twenty billion dollars in them, while while you're paying forty percent of your money to the government. You know, so so there's um, you can't be fooled by the stated policies. You know, uh, the Declaration of of Independence, all men are created equal except blacks and their slaves. You know, there's a there's an inherent contradiction in the messaging, and um, the CIA is the um, uh, nowadays in the modern era, the primary um, uh, mechanism for making sure that um, that message is correct and serves the, the um, establishment class at the expense of, of um, anybody who's not in it.
0: Doug, so your first book on the CIA is uh, the Phoenix Program. What is the Phoenix Program and why is it relevant today?
1: Um, The Phoenix program was created by the CIA in Saigon in South Vietnam in 1967. And uh, it was a program that the CIA created in order to identify, capture, imprison, interrogate and kill the um, communists who had organized, who were secretly organized in South Vietnam and were running the insurgency in South Vietnam. So it's, a, um, it's essentially a police program but it, it to, to, you know, like something the FBI would do here in the United States or nowadays the Department of Homeland Security which is actually modeled on the Phoenix program in, in South Vietnam. So in order to identify and capture and kill all the communists in South Vietnam, the CIA created a, and what was called, uh, it it incorporated 25 military and intelligence and police organizations that were operating in South Vietnam and directed, brought them all together and focused them on this uh, communist counterinsurgency in what were called intelligence operations coordinating centers. Okay. And a Phoenix guy, a guy from the, um, who had been appointed by the Phoenix directorate in Saigon, and it was in the beginning they were CIA people, later they became military people. Uh, they would coordinate these 25 organizations, representatives from in every district and province in South Vietnam. There were 44 provinces, which are equivalent to a state in the United States. And the districts were, you know, I think there was 250 of them in South Vietnam. They were equivalent to a county. And so they covered the whole country with, with these intelligence operations and coordinating uh, coordination centers where they brought all the military intelligence and police services together and focus them on the communist insurgency. Now it's relevant today because after um, 9-11 and with the new threat of um, uh, possible Muslim terrorists existing throughout the United States, the government created of um, George Bush, created the, uh, first of all, the office of Homeland Security, which was um, in October of 2001, a month after 9-11. And the guy that was tapped to, to write up the um, uh, enabling documents for this Office of Homeland Security was a guy I had interviewed for the Phoenix program book, uh, CIA, former CIA guy named Bruce Lawler who had gone through a series of ups and downs. And in the late 1990s had come to head within the the United States, the military branch that was, um, that ran civic affairs in the United States. Mm -hmm. The military relations with um, civic institutions in the United States, police forces, corporations, You know, anywhere that um, football teams, any kind of uh, civic organization that the uh, uh, military felt that it needed to uh, work with, Bruce Lawler was in charge of them. And under Bruce Lawler, (laughs) who had been worked for the CIA in South Vietnam as part of the Phoenix program. He created this, this office of Homeland Security based on the Phoenix program. And the first thing he did was create NorthCom or suggest that NorthCom be created. NorthCom is the first military command in the, United, in the continental United States, it's called NorthCom. The, the, the military had, never had a command in the United States until NorthCom. And this gets created a month after 9/11, and it becomes the backbone of the Department of Homeland Security. And now, it is the the this office of Homeland Security within a couple of months becomes a full-fledged department of Homeland Security, which we now know today. And um, it combines, just like the Phoenix program did, all the intelligence, you know, like the FBI or uh, the intelligence branches of every state police service in the country, um, the, the intelligence branch of every police force, the CIA, which is not actually indicated on the organizational chart, but which is represented through the Department of Homeland Security Office of Intelligence and Analysis. They, they are there, and they're They have to look into everything that the department, you know, have access to all the intelligence that the Department of Homeland Security accumulates on its computer system so they control for people that they want to turn into double agents or agents and send back overseas. I've worked for them the CIA. And that's how that whole thing comes together. Again, with Bruce Lawler, just like Roosevelt and Donovan were personification of the CIA. This guy, Bruce Lawler, who really hated the left, I mean, really hates the left, uh, became the um, personification of the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, it's, it just, And then the, the, eventually the Department of Homeland Security created a fusion center in every state in the United States. And these are just like the intelligence operations and coordinating centers of the Phoenix program, that serve the exact same function and they're bureaucratically organized the same way. And again, the people that run this organization are not cops on the beat. They're not plumbers, electricians, uh, you know, guys who run the grocery store and the part of the establishment They're, they're connected to, in every state, what's the, the people who um, own what's called the critical infrastructure. And which is what the Department of Homeland Security is dedicated to protecting, and this the critical infrastructure is Microsoft, uh, the Internet, um, oil industry, any kind of you know the people who actually the industrial industrialists who actually own the United States of America. The Department of Home, you know, it's it's businesses, it's major businesses, it's. Um, TV and radio stations, uh, anything that's really important to the infrastructure, which Biden is now promising to update. Um, The Department of Homeland Security is dedicated to protecting those civic institutions and the military coordinates with them through the uh, North Common Department of Homeland Security. And so does the CIA and every law enforcement, institution in the United States through these fusion centers and also uh, off the organizational chart in just through personalities and uh, personal connections. So it's important to understand the Phoenix program for that, for that reason.
0: Thank you, Doug. I think we have time for just one more. I'll just do the next question on the list here. I want to turn our attention to the media you say journalism in the US is a traditional cover for CIA officers. Uh, many of us have heard of Operation Mockingbird. What was that, and is there currently a program like that today?
1: Well, sure. That was um, and when the CIA was going through its early organization, um, before it actually became in 1954, the CIA as we know it now. There was some, uh, a branch of the, what was being formed into the CIA called the Office of Policy Coordination under a guy named Frank Wisner, who was a Southern aristocrat um, who early on, who had been in the OSS and stayed on and ran its covert operations around the world. A, the CIA has special intelligence, which is agent nets, And then it also has um, covert action, which are the deniable operations that the CIA creates around the world, including within the United States. And this guy Wisner created what he called the Mighty Whirlerser. Again, it it has to do with messaging. And and, in order to uh, provide cover for CIA operations around the world, he knew that he had to form relationships with the major media in the United States. Many many of the, um, like a guy who owned the, um, the Brooklyn Eagle, a guy named Preston Goodfellow, was one of the original founders of the OSS. And, and so the media had always been a part of the, um, the secret services of the United States. Roosevelt and Donovan and all these guys knew that in order to conduct their covert operations, they had to have the complicity of the media in order to be able to say, we don't want you telling how we're overthrowing Guatemala, or we don't want you, you guys reporting on how we're overthrowing Mozadeja in, in, Ar- in, in Iran. You know, you guys gotta help us out. And they were more than happy to do it. And so Mockingbird is the original operation. Um uh, uh, Original in the sense that it was formalized and giving a name. They understanding they had done it all along. Even back to the creation when the Declaration of Independence is written and, and, and claims that all men are created equal, you know, except for the clause that says not blacks, you know, I mean the messaging has always been important. And Americans understand that, that preserving the, the myth of democracy is very important. And if you're gonna have an organization like the CIA that conducts unstated, undemocratic policies. Imperialistic neo-colonial policies around the world. You have to control the messaging, and so Operation Mockingbird became the way that that was going to be done, and and uh, it you know basically became a, um, um, a bureaucratic way of conscripting um, all the major media of the United States into this this. Um, um, coordinated effort to control the message that was delivered to American people so that the CIA could continue its operations, undemocratic operations around the world in secret. A guy named Guy Debord said, secrecy is the key to, to dominance, foremost as the secret of dominance. <laughs> you know, So you can't dominate and have an establishment that rules you if you know that it's there and it's doing it. You have to have the establishment has to operate in secrecy and it has to have a cover story, so of lies to protect it. And the CIA uh, basically created that along with the military and the State Department and the, you know the, certainly all the industrialists were more than happy to go along with it, including the industrialists who are um, on the media.
0: Uh, just one more question related to the, the media. You talk about the compatible left in your book. What, what is the, the compatible left?
1: Um, that was a term that was coined by a CIA officer named Cord Meyer, who was in charge of, uh, uh, who was part of this Office of Policy Coordination, which later became the Department of Plans doing the covert operations of the CIA and after World War II, it was the communists and socialists throughout Europe had been the only people that basically had resisted the fascists. And so, so the United States finally found itself with military bases in Europe, in Italy, in uh, well, Germany. I mean, there was American military government in Germany for many years, which actually ran the country and reorganized it. And um, uh, all throughout Europe and Asia, there's now all these military bases and now they're no longer fighting fascists. They're getting the fascists back up on their feet and they they, in order to fight the new menace, which is Soviet and then later uh, Mao Zedong communism in Asia. And in order to do this, they had to um, uh, convince the communists who they had worked with in the resistance to the fascists to come over to America way of doing things and and so um this became the major program of the CIA in post-World War II Europe and also in Asia which was the idea of creating a compatible left uh, organizations on the left that would that would move away from Soviet communism and they would entice them, uh, the CIA would secretly entice communists to come over and and they would that they thus you know, searched out the compatible us. Francis Stoner wrote uh, uh, a book about it, you know and how the media and the world of arts and letters were central to doing this to making an intellectual appeal to the leaders of, of, of the communist leaders uh, of labor organizations, in particular, which is what this guy Cord Meyer focused on. It was, he was the head of the international operations group, and so they had um, labor leaders from the United States, in particular, a guy named uh, Joseph Lovestone and his deputy Irving Brown, who went around to all the labor organizations and gave them bags of money and said, "Come over to the dark side." And uh, you know, everybody was starving in Europe after World War II. Uh, you know, people were. Displaced, they were living on pennies, and they needed the money. And so, a lot of them sold their souls to take CIA money to get themselves back up on their feet. And instead of being, um, you know, uh, uh, they severed their ties with the with the Soviets and created their own brands of what became known as social democratic parties across uh, across Europe and and um, and Asia and uh, uh, became very profitable for, you know, the Christian Democrats and things like that. And, and the CIA is very largely responsible for providing the seed money for these new uh, intellectual uh, newspapers, magazines, uh, and uh, labor organizations, which, um, you know, took the CIA's money and, and to varying degrees did its bidding. That's the compatible law. And I should add that, you know, this is what the forces of reaction are doing on a daily basis and have been doing ever since labor organizations were created in the United States. The whole idea is to convince their leadership to come over, you know, to the side of, of capital. Um, uh, you know, capitalists have done a very good job over, you know, the last century of conv- uh, convincing labor leaders to, to um, you know, compromise uh, their, um, uh, the people they represent and their interests and, and to divide them and pit them against themselves. You know, uh, they do the same thing with um, leaders of the civil rights movement. They do the same thing with leaders of the feminist movement. Uh, you know, the, these are the people that the CIA is going after. They're not going after Fox News because Fox News already knows what to say, you know. And, and I say, they're not going after reactionaries and, and people who support capitalism and and the capitalist ruling class. They're going after you know, trying to to court anybody who's um you know somewhat in opposition to the capitalist ruling class.
0: Doug, thank you so much for joining us and. Thank you for writing these important books and your important research. Everyone, make sure you go out and and check out Doug's books. Um, Thank you so much. Hopefully we can do this again sometime.
1: Okay, my pleasure.
0: Zach Boschman here, co-owner of CitizenTruth.org. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of the Citizen Truth podcast. The intro and outro song is Enthusiast by Tours and is provided via the Creative Commons license. Please subscribe and check us out at CitizenTruth.org.